Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Diana McCauley. She's the author of a new book called Daylight Come, published by People Tree Press in 2020. Diana McCauley is a writer and environmental activist from Jamaica. This is her fifth novel, and as a work of speculative fiction, it looks into a future in which it is too hot to go outside during the daytime. This has implications for the ways island inhabitants live, work, and even love. Macaulay sounds an alarm and creates a world that is not so distant from what many communities are already experiencing. Yet, at the same time, her world is not without beauty or kindness. Here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Diana. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my, my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start um, by having you tell me a little bit about the origin story for this book. How did you get the idea for it? It was a few years, well, several years ago now, and I was traveling in the UK and I saw a story of construction workers in the Middle East. I think it was Qatar, but don't hold me to that. But somewhere in the Middle East, construction workers were falling from the scaffolding of buildings because of extreme heat. And it got me start. It started me thinking about what would happen if it became too hot to go outside during the day. I mean, I live in Jamaica. I've lived here all my life, except for two years at school. And... When I came home, I then started to really pay close attention to how much of our life occurs outside here in a Caribbean island. And of course, there's just an enormous amount of people who are working and living outdoors. And that's how that was the sort of kernel of the novel. What happens if it's too hot to go outside? How would we respond to that? How would we grow food? You know, how would we, what kind of work would we have? What would happen to the things that we regard as the norm in Western societies? You know, things like roads and schools and all of that. And once the idea sort of took hold of me, I, I couldn't shake it. And that's, that was the beginning of Daylight Come. Yeah, so actually wanted to ask you about that. The the circumstances um, in the book, as you mentioned a little bit, are quite dire, right? You can't be outside during the day. The roads have melted. Food and water are scarce. Um, and it's it's practically unrecognizable. But at the same time, as you mentioned, and as I just was just reading a story in the newspaper yesterday, um, on the I was uh, a story about India and the temperatures there are reaching 120 degrees and they are warning agricultural laborers not to be outside. So <laughs> it's not that far from from what you're talking about. How many how many steps away do you think we are from that? Well, it, it's a ta- that's a timing thing, and you know I don't I don't know and I don't want to predict. All I know is the risks of these kinds of scenarios increase every day that we don't act in the way that we should. And I don't, by that, I don't mean individuals. I have come to feel that the climate crisis is a large geopolitical problem, a problem of leadership, a problem of governments. Um, and they seem very unwilling to take the kind of drastic action that's needed, which I 
I totally understand. I don't want my entire life, you know, upturned either. So, so, but I, so, so I basically think these outcomes are ahead of us in some unknown time frame, which is affected by how we choose to act. But for Jamaica, it's not at all far off that we might have food shortages or it might become too hot to go outside during the day or even that our, our existing shelters, our homes, which are often built with a completely different temperature in mind, become very difficult to live in. And I, in, in writing the book, I also tried to include things that had actually happened already in some part of the world. So they haven't, of course, all happened on one, one island, but almost everything in the book has occurred in some place at some time in the world. Yeah, I found that to be true. So things were recognizable, not not completely foreign or alien. Um, but you've been working on these issues for a long time, right? You created the Environmental Foundation, Jamaica Environmental Trust, a while ago. Um, and I'm wondering how that has shaped your writing and also vice versa, how the writing has shaped the environmental work that, that the Trust does. They're, they're very closely related. Um, my Daylight Come is my first sort of explicitly environmental book, if, if I could call it that. But if my other books have this very, I hope anyway, this very strong connection to an, an foundation in place, because for me, that is a, a very important aspect of being human that we ignore at our peril. So it was my own connection to place that led me into environmental work more than 30 years ago now. And then because writing is a way I try and make sense of the world, even figure out sometimes what I think. And because I also think stories are the best way to communicate with other human beings, people you will never meet, don't know, you know, live in a completely different part of the world, have totally different experiences to you. I translate these concerns that I have that only increased during my years as an environmental activist into my writing. So how did you decide that a 14-year-old girl was going to be the protagonist? I'm a little obsessed. There's something <laughs> if you read if you read my books, I'm obsessed with certain things. I'm obsessed with place. I'm mm-hmm. obsessed with naming. And I'm obsessed with that age person where mm. you know you're on the cusp of teenage, maybe just post-puberty, beginning to grapple with what it means to be a woman or a man, because I've written also a, about 12-year-old, one of my protagonists is a 12-year-old boy. So I'm I'm interested in that period of, of both girls' and boys' lives, young women and young men's lives. It's something I remember very clearly in my own life, although I'm you know decades away from that time. And I just think it's full of drama and it's full of trying to figure out the world and, and your place in it. Yeah, and she she really um, Sorrel is her name, and she, you can you can really sort of watch her trying to do that. I was really interested in the way um, that she related to the world. Right, she lives in a very difficult world. Her circumstances are quite dire, and she has wisps of memories of things of how it was before. But she she still manages to find joy and beauty, um, and kind of comfort where she, when and where she can and she feels a lot of empathy and she has hope right and so I'm wondering why that was important to you so I've read very widely I'm a, I'm a voracious reader as so many writers are I've read very widely about 
people in these dreadful situations, you know, Holocaust, wars, um, genocides, aftermath of genocides, natural disaster, natural disasters. And I've been struck by that. I've been struck by how even in the most dire circumstances, people whose you know lives are absolutely on the line, they, they have no comfort, they have no agency, they're, they're being ruled over by arbitrary and cruel people, they still find the way a way of, to find hope, they still notice beauty, they still look out for each other. And I, that's what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about not just what would happen to the physical world, not not just what would happen to our conduct of our lives, but but how would we feel? How would we react? Would we look after each other? Would we become, you know, just feral as some of the animals in the book do? And, uh, would we see? Would we see hope? And would we? And would we? walk towards that hope, you know, walk, tr- try and seek out a better life? Or would we just give up? And so my, I didn't want my main, my protagonist to, to give up. I wanted her to instinctively know that this was not the way human beings were supposed to live and really try to, try to find a better way. Yeah. And the relationship with her mother is uh, really important in the book, too. And I noticed that actually you chose to write in the first person when you write in the mother's voice. And why why did you make that choice? I struggle quite a bit with point of view, and I often go through my books changing them. But I wanted to give the mother... I I wanted to give her a chance to explain, to, to talk directly to the reader about her own experiences because she's the one who has seen the change, you know, more, more the grandmother who is, who is dead, but the, the mother is the one who can explain what's really happened. And so that's why it was important for me to, to have her say it directly rather than a narrator in, in the third person. Yeah. I was interested also in the mother because, you know, as a mother and as, as a university professor, I spend uh, my life surrounded by young people, right? And so there's a there's a kind of current of real animosity and hatred towards older people in this book, um, almost institutionalized, right? And they're to blame for the world as it is. And I I often tell my students, you know, you have to fix this mess that we've made that we've made here. Um, and so, um, it, and and maybe I um, maybe it's a little bit different from from your experiences in Jamaica now, um, but. But in the book, it's it's really striking that elders are not respected. They're ostracized. Um, they're really um, they're left out to die. Um, how how did you come to realize that that was going to shape the story? It just seemed to me that that that's that logical thing that could happen and and maybe will happen because it's my generation and you know a, a little bit younger than me now who have really are really still mired in in action. And, and so I can really imagine younger people. I have two grandnephews who are both under two. And I often, when I go to visit them, I want to apologize to them, you know. <laughs> I want to say, I'm really sorry. I, I tried. Personally, I tried, you know. But a whole bunch of us have left you to deal with this, with this mess. And so I thought it was quite likely that given the kind of societal breakdown that I described, that... They'd be a cast around for someone to blame. There always is, you know, and and that it was very likely going to fall on old people. And and that there would be this idea that you know they their resources are now scarce. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. Shelter is a problem. So who's expendable? And who can we justify as being expendable? And it seemed to me it would definitely be old people. 
Yeah, except they have a little bit of knowledge. Yes, but I think but what I imagined was the young people would feel what good was your knowledge? It didn't yeah. lead you to act. You yeah. knew and you chose to do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. In that in that sense, I mean, I think that 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 really resonates with with the ways that I feel quite often. Actually, it's true. Um, so can we talk about hair? There's a there's a theme in the in the book about hair short hair, growing hair. Um, I'm very curious as to, as to how, you, how you think about hair and why it plays such a role in the book. But it, it's related to another, another thing that I often get asked about, which is race, right? skin color. So the, the, the emphasis on hair and, and skin color is, or rather the lack of emphasis on skin color, the lack of discussion of it, is a sort of reflection of preoccupations of current Jamaican culture. I mean, right now, as I, today, as I'm writing, there's, a, there's an enormous, as I'm speaking to you, there's an enormous debate over some teenage boys who were um, excluded from their school because their hair didn't meet grooming standards. So, you know, all these years after colonialism and British rule, we're still very conflicted about hair. So I wanted to talk about how hair was seen Was it still a preoccupation? And I imagine that it was, you know, that it differentiated people. And and, and I wanted to signal as well by using hair without explicitly saying what color people were, really, that there was this this very mixed racially that that this these ideas of black and white, these binaries of black and white, which is how we tend to talk about skin color, had disappeared. And I wanted to signal that a bit, by the way, people had different kinds of hair. And in a way, when, when the question of, so, so, so everybody has to have their hair taken off, right? Because this is a, this is a, this is a command of the, the government called the Domins. I wanted to suggest that this is a way to control people, to make them the same, to take away their individuality. And it was only when when the group of tribals were out of the control of the government that they were able to express some of that individuality. And they were allowed to have whatever hair they had, if you see what I mean. Yes, absolutely. And that actually answers a question that I had about race, because I read the book and I realized that you don't talk about it at all, which is a little bit unusual, um, but, but, but it works just beautifully in the book. Um, so it's very interesting. And, and the question of hair, yes, comes up a lot, I think, in any any of those contexts in terms of also in just in terms of youth and, and how, you know, our sort of older people's expectations for them about grooming, as you said. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I thought, you know, I, I wondered, again, trying to, you know, world build and imagine this world. I wondered if every aspect of our lives was under threat or destroyed and we were really clinging to a rather bleak survival, if race would remain a preoccupation for us. And I decided to imagine that it that it wouldn't. And I decided to imagine a world where there had been enough intermarriage that those the skin color idea had had become just this these shades, you know, these shades of different colors and colors and not the binary that we tend to talk about, even though that binary is also completely untrue if you really look at people. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So that's yeah. what that's what I was trying to 
trying to get at. So things have become so dire that our old preoccupations, the old ways that we divided ourselves from each other, had become irrelevant. Yeah. But gender still matters. Gender still matters. Yes, gender still matters. And again, you know, these are these are choices you make. You can't you can't write about every possible thing in any any novel. But I did want to write about relationships between women, which is why there's a strong strong element of the relationship between Sorrel and her mother, um, the relationship between her mother and her grandmother, and the relationship between the women, the tribals that that, that live together in a in a band. And I wanted to talk a bit about what happens when they encounter men. Mm-hmm. And they've really, in, in their lives, had very, men or boys, and they've really, in their lives, had almost no interaction with the opposite sex because of the way that, you know, they're all working at home and everybody works at night and sleeps in the day. So I guess that was what I wanted to explore about yeah. the lives of women, the relationships between women, whether they support each other or, or fight against each other, and the you know, how much a mother is prepared to sacrifice for her daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tremendous sacrifice. But I mean, it, it, the, the the thing that, that also struck me in the book is that there is, um, there's some violence, there's some gender violence, right? There's some fear. Um, and there's, there's a whole, there's a whole sort of set of discourses about the differences between men and women. But then also in the end, there's a little bit of hope, right? It's not entirely dystopian. Yes, I, I didn't want to leave you at the end of the book feeling when I just walk into the sea now, you know. <laughs> and actually, if, thinking about it, I wanted to write two books, which is why the end, in a way, it, it leaves it open as to what happens when the people from the north arrive on the cruise ships, not to totally give away the end of the book, but there's a question about, well, what's what's really going to happen now? I mean... You know, there's been some, as you say, some hopes. Um, they've found a place that maybe is possible. What what happens next? Is the world going to leave them alone? If you live in a place like Jamaica, where we have some advantages where the climate crisis is concerned, you know, it's a hilly island. So although, yes, a lot of our coastal development would be, is going to be badly affected by sea level rise and, 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 pro- and probably increased storms. We have mountains, you know, which will probably also help with the temperature you know, the temperature problems, because as you go up, it's cooler. So we have some advantages. We have a year-round growing season. So I so I was thinking, so I thought, well, is the world going to leave us alone? <laughs> let's, say, let's say we figure it out here, you know, and we've carved out some kind of society, like going back to the Tainos, Jamaica's original inhabitants did. You know, probably lower populations, probably a very different way of life than what we have now. But suppose we figured it out and we're coping. Is the, is the world going to leave us alone? And so what's the second book you wanted to write? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure that I will do that because actually after I completed this, I you know, started writing something else, which is now almost finished. But that was, the, that was my thinking to, to get into, to, in the first book, to get into what life was like on the island. And then in the second book to think about, well, how's the world going to react to this? You know, are we going to see what's happening in, in Ukraine to a degree, you know, where somebody else wants what you have and and goes to take it and or what happened in history you know with the with the original inhabitants here who were annihilated by um, the spanish initially and then the english yeah. yeah and you know there's this there's this also as well what have what have 
Jamaicans done, you know, both the descent, both slaves themselves and the descendants of enslaved peoples, what have they done? They've escaped to the hills. There's a tradition of marinage. So I wanted to talk about that too. So this thing is occurring again in our history and again at our hands because the climate crisis is something we humans have caused. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you were talking about sort of the the nature of Jamaica and the island, um, and the importance of place, and I really sense that in the book. But I'm wondering also if this could be sort of more broadly a Caribbean book. Um, yes, I think that, which is you know why I fictionalized Jamaica mm-hmm. because I think it's recognizable to any Caribbean person living on a on a hilly island, which is many, if not most of them. And I think the problems that everyone faces on Bajaku are the problems that are going to come to the entire Caribbean region, which we seem to be quite blissfully thinking is way down, way ahead in the future and, and is not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't often interview writers of fiction. This is really fun for me. Um, but I'm wondering how you think that historians or social scientists would benefit from reading and engaging your work. Well, as I said, I think stories are the things that reach into people's hearts rather than their minds. My, my, my life as an environmental activist, so I retired in 2017, although my concerns haven't retired. I, in, the, in the early days, I made a very great effort to have the facts, you know. So I did a lot of research. I knew numbers. I could quote scientific studies if I was concerned about something, but I didn't didn't know much about it, I was unwilling to speak. And but I eventually started to to understand that my command of the facts wasn't what persuaded people. It was my any 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 reach to their emotions. When I let my 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 worry, my fear, my anger, my passion, my conviction, when I let that show, that was when I reached people. So I think there is a there is a there is a need for people who social scientists, people who write nonfiction, and, and I must say I do see this a lot in some of the creative nonfiction that's coming out on climate and environment now. They have to also, while presenting whatever set of facts there there are, they have to reach for people's hearts and nothing does that better than stories. It gets people talking, you know. I mean, you you, you say you're a teacher, professor, imagine you know, you take a scientific or textbook on climate into your classroom and, and, and ask for a discussion on what's in the book versus a story like this one. Or, I mean, I don't know if you've read Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry of the Future, which starts with this massive heat wave in India, which is, you know, happening right now as we speak. You get people talking with stories, and that seems to me now at this juncture that we're in the most important thing that needs to happen. When you go out for your friend with your friends for a drink, it, the climate crisis is what needs to be the subject. You can imagine that makes me really pop- popular and I don't get many invitations to go for a drink, but that's what I think. Well, I mean, I, I agree. I, I do teach these um, both kinds of texts to my students and inevitably, you know, they they come away thinking and talking and wanting to read more of the novels and the fiction um, and the stories um, because that's really what, what what gets them and what they remember and what they what they connect with more than anything else right so absolutely and sometimes I think we should just all give up and hand it over to the fiction writers 
Um, <laughs> I don't know about all give up, but I do think there is a much, there's a very great place for 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 creative people, not just not just writers, but all kinds of creative people to really try and get us to understand what it is we are facing, what it is we have done. Yeah. Without giving too much away, do you have a favorite passage in your book? Um, you know, I have a favorite pass- passage in many other of my books that I can go to right away, but this one is harder. I let me let me look. I have it beside me. I think if I think one of the places that I come back to over and over again is the voice of the mother when she talks about how this all happened. Mm-hmm. So, what, they, do you want me to read it? Is that what you're asking? Well, I would love that. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. So this is this is Bibi Sorrell's mother. Mm-hmm. They called it different things change, then crisis, followed by emergency. Then they changed it to disruption, then disaster. In the end, it didn't matter. Finally, they, and you never knew who they were, realized that the worsening climate converged with poverty, geography, and history. So now they call it the convergence. I was 11 and lived with my parents in the foothills overlooking Bana. Higher elevations were cooler, so we were luckier than others, and I believed we deserved it. Every night, my mother and father watched good-looking men and women on television report on melting ice, swirling snowstorms, cities swallowed by earthquakes. We saw people washed away by rivers that broke their banks, taking villages with, with them. We watched whole islands drown. All this was far away. I thought the news was boring and had nothing to do with us. The decapitated mountains were not ours, nor were the children swept away by raging water. So I guess I'd pick that as my favorite passage. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think that that, that's a wonderful passage and it it really does kind of bridge. If this is, you know, some, some time in the future, uh, that passage absolutely bridges the present and the future. I think in her own memory, but also just for us thinking, thinking forward. That's 2084, you know, and not to Mr. Orwell. Yeah. And yeah. Um, So I came away with a kind of sense of urgency after reading this book, but also uncertainty about how to proceed. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. I think that is the hard part. When I talk to young people, which I still do, they feel that they have that sense of urgency they have, they have a sense of fear. They're grappling with feelings of grief and anger, but they don't know what to do. And I do understand that because it's such a big and worldwide problem that how do you, how do you get your arms around it? So I come down on, on what I said earlier, that movement, it's a mistake to think the world doesn't change. You know, I'm a female writer. I'm talking to a female professor and in my lifetime, I, you know, I couldn't, almost couldn't marry, marry who I wanted to, almost couldn't, you know, take out a bank loan. So it's a mistake to think the world doesn't change. It does change. But what, what brings that change about? And what brings that change about is energy among people who are concerned and organization and good stories. And so what I say to, to the young people is, is what I said earlier that makes me a, 
you know, an unwilling participant at a night out for a drink, is you have to talk about talk to your friends, join with them, you know, help people who are active in any way that you can. If it's money, let's say you're a young mother and you have a young baby and really you can't, you know, be in the streets or whatever. If it's money, send money. If it's you can make sandwiches, make sandwiches. If you can write, write. If you can help organize, organize. If you're willing to put your bodies in the streets, do that. I'm, I'm quite heartened by some of the civil protests that I've seen re- recently, especially the thousand or more scientists who, who, who demonstrated all over the world recently. Because that's not, that, that's not what scientists do, eh? They're not in the street with placards. And I think perhaps as awful, as appalling as the war in the Ukraine is, maybe it'll make us understand our dependence on oil and gas, on fossil fuels. That's actually destroying the entire planet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It it's it seems to be taking people a little while to get to that point, but... But yes. that seems to be the, <laughs> the obvious conclusion. It's the old boiling frog thing. You know, we, we react quickly to, the, to immediate threats, you know, the sort of genetic code that we have of the, the large animal. We react quickly to run away from an immediate threat, but a more slow-moving one, we're just very bad at, you know, and especially a slow-moving complex one, which is why I, I so feel that stories can help because if we ask each other to imagine what this really means, then I think we have our best chance of of of, of that imagination being the, the thing that motivates us to act in whatever way feels appropriate for us, feels possible for us. Yeah. Um, I have taken up so much of your time. I, I really want to thank you. I have one last question. Um, who Who are your ideal readers? Huh, my ideal readers, first and foremost, people in the Caribbean or other island people. Because especially if you're a small island developing state, you get left out of of the discussion about what, what we should do at this point. In my environmental life, I went a couple of times to these large um, either UN or other kinds of, of big international groupings meetings. And, you know, I noticed... The, the delegation for a developed country, a Western country, would be 25 people, you know. <laughs> but an island country would have one person or two or three. So it was really this power imbalance that I, that I saw playing out in these big international meetings. So I want those of us who live on islands and where I am from, Caribbean, to really imagine what this could mean for our, our, um, our lives. And then secondarily, we have a lot of people that visit our islands. They come as tourists. And I want to reach out to them as well and say, look, this isn't a playground for you. Yeah. This is this is a real place with real people who have real lives and the lifestyle that has brought you here, the privilege that has brought you here to get on an airplane or a cruise ship and stay in a hotel. That privilege is is threatening us, is threatening us imminently. Yeah. So I don't want only to write to the Caribbean, although that's where I start always. I want to I want to talk to the people who come to the Caribbean, who people people who love the idea of islands. Have you ever noticed what a romantic thought an island is for oh, yes. human beings? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
uh, they love them, but they don't understand often the implications of what that means, right? And yeah, yeah. I had a Peace Corps volunteer who worked for the Jamaica Environment Trust for three years once, and she said to me, and she was a very experienced American, two master's degrees, lots of experience in education, and she said to me, Jamaica is all the problems of the world writ small on mm-hmm. a scale that you can manage. Mm-hmm. And I feel that about islands. I feel that they are the places where the solutions might be worked out, the places where the problems and the solutions are are evident, are manifest on a scale that is manageable. And for that, they're valuable. Yeah, I hope that's true. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you, Alejandra. It was my pleasure.